From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, June 1st. I'm Aaron Schachter. The ongoing violence in Syria frustrates diplomatic efforts to end the fighting, and the rebels may be getting ready for the long haul. Inside the opposition communities, they almost universally want weapons. That's what they're looking for. Also today, if the U.S. has launched cyber attacks against Iran's nuclear program, is that legal under international law? The rationale, I believe, is going to have to fall into the area of self-defense. Plus, the underground women's soccer scene in Saudi Arabia. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The United Nations Human Rights Council passed a resolution today condemning Syria for the massacre in Hula. It was a week ago that more than 100 civilians, including many children, were killed in the Syrian town by pro-government militias, according to the UN. The Human Rights Council wants an independent investigation into the massacre. Russia and China voted against the resolution. Russia instead supports an investigation by the Syrian government itself. The Guardian's Martin Chulov was in Syria recently and is now back at his base in Beirut. He says U.N. monitors in Syria played a key role in determining who was behind the Hula massacre. Three monitors turned up a day after the massacre. However, they were able to chronicle and document what had taken place, you know, remove any of the ambiguity about who was responsible for this killing. It was, it was very clear that it was the pro-regime militias who, who did it. And having the, the U.N. say so, so emphatically, so early on, was instructive this week. You know, we've seen disagreement or we've heard disagreement between people who appear to speak for the Free Syrian Army. One group this week made a threat that if Assad doesn't stop, something will happen. Another group disavowed that threat. Were you able to determine when you were there what kind of coherence there is among the rebel forces? That's a key issue. The rebel forces are fragmented. They're working basically as separate militias. There is no effective central command and control within the Free Syria Army whatsoever. The leadership, or the notional leadership, has been operating out of hotels and a refugee camp in Turkey. There is a lot of disaffection with the way that uh, that leadership has been claiming credit for directing operations where it hasn't been operationally involved. So unless there is some kind of a central current that runs through the opposition forces there, they are going to continue to be relatively easy pickings for the Syrian army. And do you get an impression from talking with people in Syria whether there is a desire for international involvement, for arming the Free Syrian Army, for attacking the Syrian regime? What, what is the general thought now from what you can tell, inside Syria? Inside the opposition communities, they almost universally want weapons. That's what they're looking for. The Turkish border had been almost sealed as far as weapons went, but in the last 48 hours, things have changed. There have been some weapons starting to get in, and for the first time in the last 16 months, they seem to be an organised state-backed supply line. We're talking oiled up Kalashnikovs, plenty of boxes of ammunition, a lot of the things that these guys have been asking for for, for quite some time. 
The uh, Assad regime has blamed most of the atrocities really on on the rebel forces themselves. Are there, there any instances where it's been proven that Free Syrian Army members committed atrocities during this conflict? They've definitely attacked regime positions. They've definitely ambushed military convoys, buses, things like that. With um, civilians killed. Yes, I, I think that that has happened. And there have been kidnappings of Alawite citizens. There have been killings. So by no means are the opposition forces or the Sunni community clean skins in this. Martin Chulov is with The Guardian. He's based in Beirut. Martin, thank you so much. You're welcome. The complicated conflict in Syria has so far defied diplomatic efforts to defuse the crisis. Ambassador Christopher Hill was part of the team that negotiated the 1995 Dayton Peace Agreement for Bosnia. He later served as a special envoy in Kosovo and as ambassador in Iraq from 2009 to 2010. He sees few options for a negotiated solution in Syria. There are various sort of half options, like creating uh, safe havens, those kinds of things that were done in Bosnia, but they frankly didn't work in Bosnia and they won't work here. So I think probably what needs to be done is some sort of political solution that everyone can get behind. And uh, that is proving elusive because, uh, frankly speaking, the uh, sides are deeply divided and getting more so by the day. During the conflict in Bosnia, the American administration said something to the effect of never again. And yet, uh, years on, it is happening again. An administration is, is killing its own people, or people at least that it is supposed to protect. What did we learn from that situation? Well, one of the problems with uh, expressions like never again is that uh, different parts of the world present very different circumstances. And it's not to say that Bashir Assad is... Uh, doesn't sort of rank up there with some of the truly uh, miserable dictators in the world. But it does speak to the complexity of how these battle lines are being drawn. After all, you have a Druze element there that tends to support Assad. You have a Christian element that tends to support him. You have Kurds that are tending to support him, arrayed against uh, some uh, Sunnis especially more sort of sectarian. A lot of Sunnis, Sunnis, that's the problem. A lot of Sunnis who uh, tend to be more in the sort of sectarian camp who oppose him. So the secular Sunnis who kind of support him, the Christians, the Druze, the Kurds, don't want to see Syria run by sectarian or run by Muslim Brotherhood. So unfortunately, the divisions here, it's more than just this miserable dictator trying to hold on against his people. It's um, really the sort of a kind of incubator, I think, for a civil war, as a number of people have pointed out. Okay. Now, you, you said the concern is doing half measures, yet at the same time, doing nothing or military invasion won't work either. So where does that leave us? Well, I think... Uh, First of all, if there were a good option, it would have been already pursued. So the fact that we are one year into this crisis with no end in sight suggests that, you know, I don't have the answer and I don't think too many other people do. My sense would be, however, to try to get behind what Kofi Annan is trying to do, to try to get behind some kind of uh, political solution. Now, when you do that, what you try to do is kind of lower the temperature and, uh, you know, not 
make uh, attacks against, in this case, uh, Bashir Assad. But the problem is, I mean, his forces or forces, if not under his command, but certainly inspired by his leadership, went off and, and murdered uh, some hundred people, including 50 children. So you can't stay silent about that. So it, it does present some real difficulties, but I think overall we need to get some notion of what's in the end of the road, what kind of coalition could be put together, how the Alawites who uh, Assad is from, how they could be represented without perhaps the personage of Mr. Assad. This is a tough issue, but I think probably Kofi Annan is the right person to rally around. Now, obviously, the situation is different between Syria and, and Bosnia. But politically speaking, is this Obama's Bosnia moment? Well, in the sense that it presents a very tough issue, uh, an issue you recall uh, Secretary Warren Christopher's comment about Bosnia, the problem from hell. I would agree that Syria is the problem of hell. Libya was kind of a problem from uh, purgatory, but uh, I think uh, Syria is is a much deeper, more nettlesome issue, and uh, it is not at all clear that the president will be can manage this thing in a way that will make him look uh, good as we go forward toward uh, in our sort of campaign mode, which our country is in today. Christopher Hill, many thanks for your time. My pleasure. Christopher Hill served recently as U.S. Ambassador to Iraq. He's now Dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. The ongoing violence in Syria has become an issue on the U.S. presidential campaign trail. Mitt Romney has been critical of President Obama for failing to provide leadership on Syria. Obama's campaign says it's Romney who's failed to provide a viable alternative. Foreign policy, though, isn't really a top concern for many voters in this election, which raises the question, how important is foreign policy experience for a presidential candidate? The world's Jason Margolis has more. It's not uncommon for a new president to be challenged on the international front during his first days of office. Think back to the early days of President John F. Kennedy. His early foreign policy ventures were quite unsuccessful. That's Elliot Abrams, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington. His first summit with Khrushchev, where we now have some historical accounts that suggest that uh, he did not impress Khrushchev at all and that Khrushchev went away thinking that this was a kid, actually, whom he could push around. And this may have been one of the things that actually led to the Cuban Missile Crisis because it emboldened Khrushchev. The inexperience argument was used four years ago against then-Senator Obama. His critics argued that here, too, was another kid that could be pushed around. Four years later, he has a record to run on. Daniel Dresner is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. You know, he can credibly claim that uh, the U.S. has been incredibly effective in terms of taking out al-Qaeda. Obviously, the, the killing of Osama bin Laden, the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq. And the list goes on. But overall, does now having four years of experience make the president more qualified to lead the U.S. internationally? I don't think it matters as well long as you choose the right advisors. That's Mark Jones, a political scientist at Rice University in Houston. Elliot Abrams agrees that advisors are crucial, but he says it's a problem when a president relies on his advisors too much. The president really is the only one of these people who runs and is elected. I mean, the vice president does in an indirect sense. But 
the president should be in charge of foreign policy. And I think that the system that existed pre-9-11 in the Bush administration was an unfortunate one. Abrams, who served in the National Security Council under President George W. Bush, says the former president relied too much on Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney at the outset of his presidency. But wouldn't any new president do the same? It's hard to say. Here's outgoing Republican Senator Richard Lugar from Indiana. He's twice chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It would be very helpful if the president came uh, to power with much more of a background in foreign policy. Uh, But at the same time, we will try to work along as best we can with whoever's there. So does Lugar think Obama has the advantage in the foreign policy arena? No. He prefers Romney. He has, I think, a pretty broad worldview, has very experienced my judgment in business, uh, less in, in maybe geopolitics, uh, but at uh, the same time, well acquainted with world leadership. That might be the politically correct answer, Senator Luger staying loyal to his party. But Mark Jones at Rice University agrees with the sentiment. He says Romney's international business career, his work running the 2002 Olympics, and his experience being a missionary all matter. All of that has provided him with a real understanding about how other cultures, how other people operate and think. And that's crucial because really for foreign policy, one of the real principal hurdles people have to cross is realizing that other people in other countries often view things from a very distinct manner and have different incentives and different behaviors driving what they do. So at the end of the day, how does this all translate at the ballot box? Daniel Dresner at Tufts doesn't think it does. Even though a sitting president by definition has more experience, Dresner doesn't think Obama can use it. And the problem is, is that in an election where the economy is issue one, two, and three, it's very dangerous for the Obama administration to go forward saying, you know, what really matters is foreign policy. It's not that that's wrong necessarily. It's that the political signal it sends is we care more about what's going on in the rest of the world than jobs at home. Consider the case of George H.W. Bush. No president since Dwight D. Eisenhower has come to office with more foreign policy experience. And many on both sides of the aisle agree that Bush was a successful foreign policy president. He executed the short and extremely popular Gulf War. And it was on his watch that the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc fell. But there was a bad economy at the time. And American voters turned away from a proven international leader in favor of a foreign policy novice from Arkansas. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Back in the 1960s, two U.S. Air Force planes collided in midair off the coast of Spain. Several crew members were killed. One of the planes was a B-52 loaded with four nuclear bombs. The weapons fell from the sky near Palomares, a small village along Spain's Mediterranean coast. There was no nuclear explosion, but parts of the town and surrounding land were contaminated with radioactive material. The U.S. took the lead in cleaning up the mess, but decades later, some in Spain are still demanding that the Americans finish the job. Now there may finally be a resolution. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Palomares. The U.S. government calls them broken arrows, nukes that go astray. On a sunny January morning in 1966, 
Palomares got four of them. Overhead, at 31,000 feet, an American B-52 bomber collided with a refueling plane and broke apart. Three of its H-bombs fell to land, the fourth into the sea. A local guy named Manolo Gonzalez says he was outside when he heard this tremendous explosion. I looked up and saw this huge ball of fire falling through the sky, he says. The two planes were breaking into many pieces. Gonzalez saw one half of the flaming bomber crash to the ground right about where the local elementary school stood where his wife was teaching. I went flying across the town on my scooter, he says, but the plane had just barely missed the school itself. In fact, no one on the ground was killed that morning. Townsfolk call it the only positive part of this story. The Americans weren't so lucky. Seven U.S. airmen died. Four others managed to eject safely from the burning planes. I saw two parachutes coming down, Gonzalez says. I got in my car and drove after them. There were only two cars in all of Palomares in 1966, and one phone and no running water. But the skies over that poor region of southern Spain were being crisscrossed daily by the world's most modern war machines. It was the height of the Cold War, and the U.S. had B-52 bombers in the air 24 hours a day in case of a Russian first strike. Southern Spain was along one flight path. Within days after the crash, the beach here in Palomares became a base for a massive military operation involving some 700 American airmen and scientists. Their goal? To find the nukes and secure them. Science writer Barbara Moran wrote a book about the accident called The Day We Lost the H-Bomb. She says locating the bombs was especially urgent because some of their toxic payload had spilled out. So these bombs that fell on land, two of them broke open and they scattered uh, plutonium dust across the countryside. Dust that the wind was blowing into the air, meaning people might inhale it. Plutonium is especially dangerous if it gets into your lungs. To clean it up, what they decided to do was remove the contaminated dirt from the most contaminated areas. Literally scrape the first three inches of topsoil up, seal it in barrels, and ship it to a storage facility back in the U.S. They did have a plan in place for this type of thing. I think they called it Operation Moist Mop. (laughs) But again, you know, it was all like supposed to be on some sort of, you know, nice flat square piece of land somewhere on U.S. territory, not on this random place where nobody speaks English and there's all these farmers and goats walking around. As the cleanup got underway, the U.S. and Spanish government set out to convince the world that they had things under control, that there was no danger. Then U.S. Ambassador Biddle Duke came down from Madrid for a swim before the TV cameras. Ambassador, we detect any radioactivity in the water? (laughs) If this is radioactivity, I love it. The U.S. wrapped up Operation Moist Mop four months later. As a precautionary measure, the U.S. and Spain agreed to fund yearly health checks on residents and to monitor the soil, the water, the local crops, the air, for decades. Over the years, there's been no evidence that anyone has fallen sick as a result of the accident. The food and water remain clean. So most everyone has forgotten about Palomares, except the people of Palomares, because the U.S.'s moist mop missed some spots. Jose Maria Herrera is a local journalist who's been investigating the accident since the 1980s. He stands on a ridge overlooking one of three fenced-off contaminated areas. In all, we're talking about some 100 acres. Herrera points to a hill within the fenced area. That crater there, he says, is where one of the bombs fell. He says you could extract at least half a pound of plutonium from the soil there today. 
Actually, just how much plutonium is still out there is hard to determine because the U.S. has never said how much the bombs were carrying to begin with. But Spanish investigator Carlos Sancho estimates that between 15 and 25 pounds of the material ended up in the soil. Sancho runs the Palomares section of CIEMAT, which is roughly the Spanish equivalent of the U.S.'s Department of Energy. He insists that the plutonium that remains does not pose health risks as long as these sites remain undisturbed. The earth there can't be moved, he says, because the plutonium is latent in the soil. If we disturb the soil, the plutonium could be dispersed. So Palomares is like a sleeping dragon. Let it lie and there's no problem. Yet townsfolk say that in itself is a problem. They say the sites still cause extensive damage. Local barman Andres Portillo says the damage is to the town's image. He says every time the story hits the media, it hurts tourism. A lot of people don't want to come here because they think the quality of life must be low, he says, that cancer rates are higher, when that's not the case at all. Some here say that without the negative publicity, this town could be every bit as popular as its more famous neighbor, Marbella. So Palomares finds itself trapped. When residents complain, the accident makes headlines again, and the number of visitors drops, as do the prices farmers get at market for their produce. But now, 46 years after the accident, there are indications that Spain and the U.S. may be closing in on a permanent solution. In February, Spain's foreign minister, José García Margallo, met with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, then with reporters. He said, Secretary Clinton has said this will be resolved before her mandate is up. In my opinion, García Margallo went on, that's about the strongest commitment you can make. Though the U.S. State Department quickly released a statement saying that no such commitment had been made, serious talks are underway, says a spokesman for the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. As to when an agreement might be reached, over who pays for the second cleanup, how it will be done, where the contaminated soil will be stored, and so on, that's still up in the air. So the residents of Palomares wait, as they have for nearly half a century. And from time to time, they allow themselves to dream. Hacer un, un museo Palomares deputy mayor Juan José Pérez says he hopes he can turn the tragedy into something positive, maybe build a museum explaining how it all happened, he says, maybe even in the shape of a B-52 bomber. We could offer guided walking tours through the affected areas, he says. But he says for any of that to happen, this story first needs an ending. For him, it would end with the U.S. coming back and finishing the job. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. Palomares, Spain. Unspoiled beaches next to radiation detection devices. You can see Jerio's video on Palomares at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Coming up, dancing on your lunch hour. It's called Lunch Beat, and it's the latest craze in Europe. The first rule is, if it's your first time at lunch, you have to dance. The second rule is, if it's your second time at lunch, you still have to dance. Now Istanbul's trying it. We take you there, ahead on the world. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Iran has long accused the United States and Israel of launching cyber attacks against Iranian nuclear facilities and infrastructure. Well, it appears the Iranians were right. A story in today's New York Times reports that the U.S. and Israel have indeed launched such attacks using weapons like Stuxnet. That's the destructive computer worm that targeted Iran and accidentally became public last year. Even after that setback, according to the Times, President Obama ordered an increase of cyber attacks against Iran. James Lewis follows cybersecurity matters at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., James, one of the really amazing things about this story, if um, the New York Times article is true, is how this worm got into the the infrastructure in Iran. Can you explain how that worked? The problem for the people who designed Stuxnet was how to get into a secure Iranian system. So that means you needed to have a human element, a human person, go and use what is one of my favorite techniques – a thumb drive. Put the malware on a thumb drive, you get some unsuspecting character to plug that thumb drive into the network, and you've just beaten all their defenses. It just seems so implausible. It's a really good trick. You can go and uh, this has happened in the U.S. People will throw thumb drives in a parking lot and, you know, some good Samaritan will pick it up and plug it into their computer to see if they can return it to the owner. The second you do that, you're gotten. I have this impression of, of sort of a secret agent parachuting in and, and handing it off to another secret agent, but that, that's not what happened. No, it, you know, this will make a good uh, sequel to Mission Impossible, but it probably was something simple, like um, an Iranian scientist is in a European hotel, he has a thumb drive, and somebody replaces it with the infected one. But it just seems such a chance way of doing such a huge operation. You can always count on humans to make a mistake. One of the things that this, where it's consistent with traditional espionage is you're counting on the ability to trick humans or to get them to react in a predictable way that you can take advantage of. And that worked really well with the Stuxnet. Behind it, of course, was some very sophisticated engineering, some relatively sophisticated programming, a deep understanding of how control systems worked and an ability for the first time to cause damage. And so altogether, it's a great package, great operation. Now, you're calling this uh, relatively sophisticated uh, programming. If it's only relatively sophisticated, why isn't this being done a whole lot more? Because you have to put it together in a whole package that involves this human espionage. You need to get the thumb drive to somebody You need to have engineers who can take apart uh, industrial control systems and figure out how they work. You need to be able to mimic, uh, to steal credentials. Stuxnet was more than the code that people found on the Internet. It was many, many parts, some of which only a high-end nation-state could carry out right now. Over time, sure, this is going to become more common, but right now there's probably only a half dozen countries in the world that could do this. Yeah, this is a question that we've been having here. Is this something that requires the resources of a government to do, or could we see, as China has been accused of doing, sort of farming out this kind of programming to uh, college graduates and and so on? Collecting data, espionage, is easy, and so you can farm that out. Causing physical damage is hard, but it's getting less hard every year. 
what everyone worries about is the you know the trend in computing is you know in year one it's high end and in year ten it's a commodity and that's the path we're on for this kind of attack. Now, James Lewis, this is your business following uh, cybersecurity. Uh, is there any fallout from what's going on now? Is there a debate, a greater debate on cyber attacks and what we do next? There's a big international discussion among governments on how do we deal with this new kind of warfare. And of course, when you have a negotiating landscape and you drop stories like this into it, the landscape changes. So we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, if the U.S. wants to go in and say, we need uh, to control this kind of thing, we need to build confidence and trust, um, stories like this might have changed the game a little bit. So watch the negotiating front. James Lewis is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. James, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Charlie Dunlap retired in 2010 as Deputy Judge Advocate General for the U.S. Air Force. He now teaches law at Duke University. General Dunlap, assuming the New York Times story is accurate, what are the legal ramifications of of greenlighting a project like this designed to destroy the infrastructure of a sovereign nation? If I may put it another way, is this legal? Well, Aaron, as you know, in in the modern world now, we're operating under the UN Charter. And the UN Charter basically only permits the use of force in two circumstances. One, where the UN Security Council authorizes it, or secondly, under Article 51, in a case of self-defense. And what gets complicated here is that when you look at Article 51, it talks about the inherent right to self-defense as a result of an armed attack. But there's an interpretation in international law that talks about anticipatory self-defense, and that actually goes back to an 1842 case. It's called the Caroline Affair, and involves the destruction of a boat by the British uh, during an insurrection in Canada. And to make a long story short, the principle that comes out of that is that it's justified only where the necessity of that self-defense is instant, overwhelming, and leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation, unquote. This all sounds a little bit squishy, though, doesn't it? Well, it requires you to make some interesting assessments, specifically how imminent is this threat. So step one, essentially, could be imminence. Right. Number one, the rationale, I believe, is going to have to fall into the area of self-defense. And so if you're into that, then you have to make the further analysis that you're going to apply this concept of anticipatory self-defense, which, by the way, not everybody in the world believes in. And then the third thing you need to do is look at these elements of anticipatory self-defense, of which, as you point out, the imminence of the threat needs to be assessed. And I'm suggesting that perhaps when we're dealing with weapons of mass destruction, we need to have a different perspective on the idea of imminence in that you may only have these windows of opportunity and you have to to seize them in a way. Is there a difference, General, between, um, legally speaking, between the espionage and the self-defense? Because it seems like the United States practices uh, an awful double standard when they wag their finger at China 
for uh, mucking about in American computers and and suggesting that they will attack our infrastructure, and at the same time they're attacking a sovereign country's infrastructure. Espionage is typically not a violation of international law, but it is a violation of the domestic law of the targeted nation. So, in other words, if we catch a spy, we can try them, execute them, or whatever the maximum penalty may be. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily committing a war crime or or even an act which would necessarily uh, engage Article 51 of the UN Charter, because espionage typically is not an equated to an armed attack. Uh, General Dunlap, is there any black and white at all? I mean, if, if a cyber attack leads to people dying or uh, poisoning of water systems or, or, or something like that, is that a case of, of black and white damage has been done, act of war? In my judgment, that would be a use of force clearly in violation of the U.N. Charter. I think it's very clear that when you have physical destruction and the direct consequences result in the deaths of people, that you're into the traditional analysis that would, uh, would, that would authorize the use of force in response. Interesting thing is that the administration, I believe it was uh, last summer, uh, in one of their uh, policy documents made the point that if the U.S. was a victim of a cyber attack, it would not necessarily limit its response to an in-kind cyber counterattack. They would an actual physical uh, attack. Yeah, they. In other words, the whole tool chest of the U.S. armed forces would be available to defend the nation, notwithstanding the fact that the the strike, whatever caused the destruction or death, might have been through a cyber means that they were not going to limit their response. And that's perfectly consistent with law, but I think it is an interesting statement uh, meant to deter those countries who may have a sophisticated cyber capability. They need to know that the entire U.S. military has a number of capabilities and it's not limited to cyber. Charlie Dunlap is a retired major general. He's executive director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security at Duke University. General, thank you for your time. Thank you. The London Olympic Games are less than two months away. All competing nations have pledged to include women athletes on their Olympic teams. That is, all except one. Saudi Arabia has refused to go along so far. The conservative Arab kingdom doesn't officially sanction organized sports for women or girls. But some Saudi women aren't waiting for permission. The world's Anne Lopez attended a sporting event in the capital, Riyadh, and has this report. The sound you're about to hear should not exist. It's a soccer match. One team wears bright yellow T-shirts and navy blue shorts. Their opponents are clad all in dark blue. On the sidelines, family and friends sit on white plastic lawn chairs, cheering on the teams. One fan has her entire face painted blue, and she bangs a metal drum. In any other country, this might be a regular soccer game between two college teams. But these players are women, and this game is taking place in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. By convention, women do not officially play soccer in Riyadh. The city is very conservative, and if authorities got wind of these games, they'd likely shut them down. 
So where the game is being played in Riyadh will just have to be a mystery. I won't tell you the names of the teams or the names of the players. You will not hear their voices. What you will hear are their words. The blue team captain is 23 years old and just graduated from college. She founded this league with a friend during her freshman year. They noticed how many students enjoyed the game, so they petitioned the university to organize a team. I realized that if we could get the university to support a team, all this talent would not go to waste. The university approved, and they got to work. The captain says she trained herself to coach other players by purchasing DVDs on Amazon and watching soccer footage on YouTube. They have limited access to facilities and funding, but that hasn't stopped them from playing. Watching the game are two businesswomen. You won't know their names either. They just started a new sports program. It targets girls from the ages of 7.5 to 18 and teaches them to play team sports. Girls over 18 can get training as coaches. It's only three months old now, but the women say there's a surge of interest. We can't advertise, so it's all word of mouth, through Twitter and BlackBerry. So far, 30 girls are participating. Outside of private schools, it's hard to find organized sports for girls, so the program is filling that gap. I want the girls outside. They need to run. And they say parents already see a difference in their daughters. It changes their mindset. Parents have noticed that their girls are less wild, less rowdy. The program is also addressing a serious problem in Saudi Arabia, the growing rates of diabetes and obesity. According to the health ministry, the national obesity rate is 25%. The rate for type 2 diabetes is 17%. The women plan to integrate a healthier lifestyle into the program. We're not pushing weight loss. First, get the girls to have fun, and then next year, we'll get them to start thinking about nutrition and a healthy diet. Creating a foundation for the girls is what the blue team captain also has in mind. Our generation started the game, the leagues, and the structure. The next generation will have it on a silver platter. We may not get to play for a national team, but we're laying the groundwork. Who knows? In 10 years, Saudi Arabia might just have a formidable national women's soccer team. Oh, and in case you're wondering, the blue team beat the yellow team 3-2. to two. For the world, I'm Ann Lopez, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Anne traveled to Saudi Arabia on a gatekeeper editor's trip organized by the International Reporting Project. You can see Anne's blogs about the trip and a picture of the trophy the blue team won at the soccer game in Riyadh at theworld.org. For today's Geo Quiz, start by imagining a shark as big as a whale. They do exist, those huge sharks. In fact, whale sharks are the largest fish in the world. They can grow up to 60 feet long and over 20 tons, but they're hardly sea monsters. Whale sharks are said to be gentle and curious. They sometimes pull up alongside fishing boats, and they don't seem to mind snorkelers who visit their underwater haunts. They typically swim in warm tropical waters that are rich with plankton. One such spot is right along the coast of Belize in Central America. So that's what we're looking for, the name of a Belizean town that's famous for whale shark watching and where snorkelers flock every year about this time for close encounters with the huge creatures. The resort town is a couple hours from Belize's capital, Belmopan, but you've only got a minute to come up with the answer. This is PRI Public Radio International.
The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The Caribbean waters off the coast of Belize are teeming with whale sharks this time of year. Anne-Marie McNeil guides snorkelers on whale shark excursions in Belize. Tell me a little bit about what you see under the water there in Belize. Sure. Well, first of all, the tours take place on the barrier reef in Belize, and Belize has the second largest barrier reef in the world, and of course the largest in the Western Hemisphere. Okay, now there is a strip of land that is almost 20 miles long, and it is the peninsula of Placencia. All the boats leave from that area. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes to get out to the area on the barrier reef where we do whale shark excursions. It's a whale and it's a shark. Which is it? Well, it's actually the largest fish in the world. It's really a fish. Um, and it is, of course, a shark species, but it's plankton feeding. They call it a whale because it's whale size. They are known to grow to up to 60 feet in length. That's a pretty big fish. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Have you ever been scared of, of being next to a 40-foot fish? Not a whale shark, no, because I know that they're not threatening to humans, especially if you're smart enough to get out of the way, because they're certainly not going to get out of the way for you <laughs> if they're coming your way. Do they swim really fast? They appear not to be swimming fast because their body movement looks very slow and languorous. But in fact, they are moving through the water quite quickly. You could not swim and keep up with one as a snorkeler or a diver. Are there any rules about how to behave when you're near a whale shark? You cannot approach a shark within 15 feet. You have to maintain a 15-foot distance at all times. So when diving or snorkeling, you need to be aware of your surroundings because you don't want to find one that's right up on top of you coming from behind. So you need to be looking behind you and around. Make sure you move out of the way. Is there a particular moment, something that really uh, caught your eye about a particular encounter? Oh, yeah. I remember what, there was one time there was a juvenile, a 15-foot whale shark, and um, because they feed on the spawn of the snapper, um, which usually has that cloudy look in the water. When we breathe with scuba and we exhale, we exhale a lot of bubbles. So it looks sort of like a little milky. So the whale shark thinks that the bubbles are spawn. So it comes over and it's trying to feed on the bubbles that you're exhaling. So I've been chased by them only because they're trying to come after the bubbles I'm exhaling and they're trying to gulp them. So it, it, it's actually, because we know that they're real sharks, why, why they're doing that, it's actually kind of humorous to us. And we have to fight to get away from them because we're not supposed to be within 15 feet of them. I can imagine <laughs> being chased by a 15-foot fish would be a little off-putting. <laughs> yes, it is intimidating. Anne-Marie McNeil runs Avedon Divers in Placencia, Belize, the answer to our geo-quiz. Anne-Marie, thank you so much. You're so very welcome. We've got video of one of Anne-Marie's close encounters with a whale shark at theworld.org. Finally, today we want to introduce you to the latest trend in Europe. 
dancing on your lunch hour. It's called Lunch Beat. People get down with a DJ, disco lights, and a room full of fellow dancers right in the middle of the workday. 17 cities across Europe held simultaneous lunch beats yesterday. It was the first time for Istanbul in Turkey. Reporter Matthew Brunwasser was there. Monique Jocks is doing important prep work for Europe's latest dance craze. She's helping to vacuum seal sandwiches for dancers at Turkey's first ever lunch beat. Jocks is a photographer from New Jersey. She's helping organize the event because she likes the concept. Rather than sit in a cafe and have lunch for an hour, you can dance. It all began two years ago with 14 people dancing in a parking garage in Stockholm. The founder says she was inspired by the film Fight Club to write a manifesto for Lunch Beat. The first rule is, if it's your first time at Lunch Beat, you have to dance. The second rule is, if it's your second time at Lunch Beat, you still have to dance. There are other rules. You don't talk about your job at Lunch Beat. Water must be served as well as a takeaway meal. No alcohol or drugs. Lunch Beats can't be longer than 60 minutes and must happen during lunchtime. The manifesto is 10 rules that dictates what lunch beat is. And if you follow those 10 rules, anyone could have a lunch beat, host a lunch beat. Another American, DJ and co-organizer James Halliday, is helping set up the venue, an underground concrete club in the Karakoy neighborhood. The music will be funky. It'll be nothing too mainstream. We love the space. The vibe is very, like, you know, it's unpolished. It's going to come as you are. You know, it's brief. Hour, hour and a half. Get in, get out, go back to work, have fun. Halliday says Lunch Beat offers a great alternative to the packed weekend nightclub scene. People don't need to be kind of all over the place in terms of their obligations. They can just come here, dance, take a lunch on the way out, get back to it. When the crowd drifts in, curiosity appears stronger than the desire to dance. Most are Turks, Americans and Europeans of the artist, hipster tech and design variety. Amer Arab is a software engineer. I thought there would be alcohol, to be honest, <laughs> but there's no alcohol. But it's going to be a good party anyway. I've never, I've never danced sober, but I'm, ready, I'm, I'm willing to try it. <laughs> While the manifesto specifically calls for one hour of music, the event operates according to Turkish time, which is not so precise. The dance floor swells to 20-odd dancers, with a larger crowd lingering outside checking things out. Celine Orensayolu says dancing and club culture is still new in Istanbul and that lunch beat is a welcome development. But still the idea is weird for me. Like without alcohol, just a lunch, like with sandwiches and stuff. You go to a club in the middle of the day and you just dance. <laughs> okay, like a sport. <laughs> Artist Celine Kocagyonju says Turks are still too concerned about the opinions of others to really let loose. But she expects they'll be more comfortable next time. That idea is brilliant, I think. One hour dance party. People overwork and start early and can't really get a night's rest. And this is perfect way to energize, actually. Re-energize and get your nutrition as well. One thing you won't get is a shower before heading back to work. The first U.S. lunch beat is planned for this Wednesday, June 6th in Queens, New York. For the world... I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. You can see a slideshow of Lunch Beat in Istanbul at theworld.org.
If you prefer to eat rather than dance at lunch hour, check out the latest blog post from the world's Clark Boyd. He contemplates adding Belgium's infamous raw beef filet American to his dining repertoire. That's also at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The World is produced by Jeb Sharp, Andrea Crossan, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavallee, April Peavy, Adeline Sear, Tracy Tong, and Carol Zoll. Chris Wolf is news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. And Andrew Sussman is executive producer. From the Man and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston, supported by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.